Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there is one in the pew somewhere near you uh, that you can find. And as I've said previously, if you do not own a Bible, take that Bible home with you as a gift from us to you and, uh, and put it to good use. Uh, and if you prefer also, we will have it on the screen. You can follow along with the text on the screen as well. Hebrews chapter 13 is where we'll be today. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 7. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 13, verse 7 through verse 14. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord and Savior, we come today to these words, Lord, to the words that have been given to us as divine revelation from the God of the universe. Lord, may we not approach this text, these words, lightly, as though they were any other words. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to approach them with humility, approach them understanding our need of grace, even to understand these words. And Lord, I ask that you would supply that grace, that we might understand these things, understand them rightly in the way that you have given them to us. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from steering either to the left or the right, but Lord, that we would remain faithful to what you have revealed to us in your word about yourself and your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen. My title for today, The Altar Call, uh, is uh, somewhat of a throwback for me to my days growing up in the Westland Church. For those of you who have uh, been a part of church traditions, maybe outside of, of what we do here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, you maybe have come across something known as an altar call. An altar call in many Protestant and evangelical churches is something that would always come at the end of the service. It was a time after the sermon, after the gospel had been presented, had been preached, that the pastor, whoever was preaching at that time, would call for any to come to the altar at the front, whether to repent of sin, whether to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever the case may be, there was a time at the end of the service when the pastor, the preacher, the leader of that service would open up a time for any to come forward to the altar. The altar, and in many of these churches who have an altar call, was a physical wooden altar up at the front of 
of the sanctuary or the worship uh, center or whatever it was called at that particular church. It was uh, in many churches designed specifically to be knelt at. There was uh, wood on a lot of it, but also there might be cushions for your knees when you would need to kneel down at the altar and come and pray at the end of the service. And we could certainly go uh, into detail about the ins and outs, the pros and cons of having an altar and an altar call at the end of service. You maybe have noticed we don't have an altar call per se at the end of our service. Uh, and hopefully you can understand a little bit of why at the end of this service. But my, my point is not to get into that, but rather to think about this, this altar call that comes at the end of many services in evangelical Christianity and to consider today how the author of Hebrews has presented his version of an altar call to the readers, to the Hebrews to which he is writing. If you'll recall, the, the major theme of the letter to the Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ. Specifically, the supremacy of Christ over the old covenant. That the covenant that Christ brings is a new covenant, in fact, a better covenant than the old covenant than that which Israel was under. The law that Christ and the covenant that he brings and the gospel that has been brought through his blood is far greater than what the Jews previously had under Judaism and under the law. And now the author here at the end of the book of Hebrews, you maybe have noticed that we only have a few verses left after this. Here at the end of his letter, He's taking this time to give an altar call of sorts to his readers. He's taking this time as, the, as he is closing his letter and these last words that he gives, these last exhortations that he gives to the church, he's taking one more opportunity to encourage his readers to hold fast to Christ and not to turn back to Judaism. As we've seen throughout the book, this is a a, thing, a theme that has regularly come up from the author of Hebrews. That he knows the temptation that it is going to be to his readers to want to turn back to what they formerly knew, to want to turn back to the rituals and the religious aspects of Judaism, and in doing so, forsake Christ and the gospel. This is what we call apostasy, to turn from the gospel, to turn from the one and true and only way and to turn to something else he's giving one last warning here against apostasy to his hebrew readers and i think this is an, an important warning for us today as much as it is for the hebrews to which he was writing he does so in a few different ways he starts his exhortation his call his altar call to to re to refrain from apostasy and hold fast to christ by recalling to their mind the example of their leaders. Point number one for our sermon today, if you are taking notes, keeping track, is this. Remember the example of your leaders. In verse 7, we read this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way and imitate their faith. The author here, as, as he's already done previously, all throughout the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He was recalling for them all of these people who by faith were counted as righteous. 
who lived not according to the flesh, not according to the law, but according to faith. And by that, they were saved. Now he is recalling to their minds, not just those of old, those such as Moses and Abraham, the the patriarchs of the faith, but rather he is recalling to their minds leaders whom they had known. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. He's speaking here in a past tense, indicating that these leaders he is encouraging them to remember, to recall to their mind were now gone, that they had died. There is certainly reason to believe or suspect that some of these whom he is encouraging them to call to remember died because of their faith, died because of the persecution that the early church was facing, though we're not told that explicitly. But at the very least, we can see that he is commanding them to consider the outcome of their way and imitate their faith. He says, look to these leaders whom you knew, whom you respected, whom you loved, and whom loved and cared for you and consider and ask yourself, what is it that they committed their life to? And why is it that they committed their life to it? There's an important side note, I think, here for leaders in the church today or or even those who would aspire to be leaders. And certainly in some sense, the Lord has called every single one of us to be a leader in some sense or another. No one in this world, certainly within the church and those who call themselves to call themselves Christians can be completely absent of any sort of leadership. And therefore, if a quality is to be found in a leader that is good, then all ought to aspire that quality. And notice the quality of the leaders that he is calling them to remember. We see two very important qualities of these leaders, these pastors, these shepherds in the church that he is calling them to remember. First of all, they are those who spoke the word of God. Those who communicated to the church right and sound doctrine. This is a key aspect for any who would desire to be a leader in the church. Certainly any who desire to be a pastor in the church. This is a a key job of a pastor. To communicate and to preach and teach the word of God. Right doctrine. Right theology. As we said last week, which will result in right living. And that right living is seen in our second aspect of a good leader. Those who are familiar with the word of God and and associated and holding fast to true and right doctrine and theology will live lives that ought to be imitated. As leaders in the church, we are called to live lives that ought to be imitated. It's sometimes tough for us to accept this reality. It's far easier, especially for those who, who maybe are in leadership, to say, you know what, I'm not good enough. I would rather you not look to imitate me, but find someone else to imitate. Find another leader to imitate. Don't imitate me because I know my shortcomings. I know my failures. And certainly our text here is not a call that, uh, that leaders are to be perfect. These leaders that they are recalled to their mind were not perfect. But what these leaders were, were committed to the gospel and committed to living their lives in light of it. They were committed to Christ. And therefore, as as Paul says, we are to follow them as they follow Christ. And so if you desire to be a leader here today, your answer to this call 
of living a life that is worth imitating is not to say, no, 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 look to someone else, but rather to fashion your life after the Word of God, to fashion your life after Christ. God has granted us the Holy Spirit and His grace, all the tools that we need along with His Word so that we might live our lives to His glory. Even though it's much easier to abdicate that responsibility, we are called not to do that, but rather to uphold it, to take on that burden, to commit our lives to holiness, to sanctification, to living our lives after Christ. This is an important challenge for leaders today to ask ourselves whether or not those who would look back and remember us would say they lived a life worth imitating. They spoke the truth of the gospel. They taught the word of God. That is my prayer for myself, for Aaron, for Robert, and for all who would desire to be leaders in the church. But most importantly, the author here wants his readers to consider what it is that their leaders have committed their lives to. For indeed, he's not calling them to commit these men and these women, these leaders in the church, to sainthood. This is not an argument for viewing them with some sort of special veneration among Christians. But rather, this is a call to see who it is that they committed their lives to, namely the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we are to imitate them because they imitate Christ. Verse 8 also serves as the grounding statement for this call and also what follows as in verse 8 we see this amazing verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we're all likely somewhat familiar with hearing this verse or perhaps seeing it on a coffee mug or on a calendar or, or on a poster somewhere. And arguably, if you've seen this verse, you probably haven't expected that it would find its way into this kind of context. Seems rather strangely placed, doesn't it? Seems more like something we would have found in Psalms or Proverbs or in the poetry books. But rather, the author here is appealing to the immutability of Christ, his unchanging character, his faithfulness, his commitment to his people as an argument for all the rest of what he's saying in this passage. Those leaders who dedicated their lives to the teaching of the word, who modeled their life as an example, they did so because of Christ, because of what he had done, not only for them, but for all of the church, for all of his people, and for the hope that he gives. The Holy Spirit is reminding us that the same Christ that these men modeled their lives after is for us, is faithful to us, and is interceding for us even right now. The same as he was yesterday, he is today, and will be forever. Therefore, we are to trust in him and remain committed to the gospel that we have received the same way these faithful leaders were. This is an ever important word for us to hear just as the readers of this letter had teachers who were faithful to teach the word of God to them and to uphold faithful living and uphold the gospel. The next verse makes it clear that there are also those who will come in who will seek to lead them astray. Verse 
9, we read this. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Point number two of our sermon today is do not be deceived. As a part of his altar call to the church, he encourages them not to be deceived. Not to be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Diverse and strange teachings can mean many things. Certainly, in our world today, we can think of a number of things right off the top of our head, likely, that would qualify as diverse and strange teachings. Namely, anything that deviates from the revealed Word of God. Or anything that seeks to distort the Word of God. Our world is full of these kinds of strange and diverse things. Even things that are now infiltrating churches. You don't have to look very far or, or it really any further than the spirituality section of your local bookstore to see that New Age spirituality is heavily infiltrating the church. Taking biblical concepts and over-spiritualizing them to the 10th degree. To say that we can manifest realities. To say that we can enjoy out-of-body experiences. That we can find out what the third heaven is that Paul spoke of. All of these things extending far beyond the words of Scripture and in fact twisting the very words of Scripture. An over-spiritualization would be considered a strange and diverse teaching. But on the flip side, you have the same thing happening in other churches in the reverse. Christian liberalism, as it has made its way into our churches, seeks to devoid Christianity and devoid the Word of God of any supernatural reality. Denying even the very resurrection of Christ. Denying life after death. All of these things which the word of God has spoken and made clear and plain to us. On the left and on the right are being distorted, twisted one way or another. And we are being presented constantly with strange and diverse teachings. But when you read this passage in light of the context that the author is writing. That is... Hebrew Christians being tempted to return to Judaism. It seems most likely that the strange and diverse teachings that he's writing about likely refer to Jewish influences. Probably having to do with things like food regulations and sacrifices that are to be made and the altar in the temple. This is confirmed by the rest of the verse where we see in verse 9 after he says, do not be led astray by Strange and diverse teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We see here that in contrast to food and regulations regarding it and sacrifices and rituals that were a part of Judaism, the author tells us that grace is what sustains and that grace is what strengthens the heart of the believer. There's a rather famous story of C.S. Lewis. If you're unfamiliar with C.S. Lewis, well, you're about to be a little more familiar with him, but prolific writer, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, the Screw Tape Letters, all kinds of, of great and, and well-known works of, of literature and writing. He served for a time as a professor at a few different, uh, few different uh, universities. And during his time as a professor, there was an event where Various professors and, and experts in world religions were gathered together for a sort of world religion expo, conference of sorts. And, and during this 
conference, during this time, a few of these professor, professors had gotten together to, to ask the question and consider the question, what, if anything, sets Christianity apart as unique among the other world religions? And as these professors racked their brain, as they considered, they were uh, considering issue after issue. Maybe it's, maybe it's resurrection, but no, there are other religions that have resurrection involved in their religion. Perhaps it is incarnation, but no, there are others that have that. And they went through theological concept after theological concept, doctrine after doctrine, and comparing it. And then C.S. Lewis, hearing the hullabaloo, wandered into the room and said, what's going on in here? And they explained to him what they were trying to do. They were trying to find what it is that sets Christianity apart as unique among world religions. And C.S. Lewis, with very little hesitation, said, well, that's easy. Grace. Grace is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. And indeed, what C.S. Lewis said is true. And you know, we could go round and round about whether or not that event ever actually happened. And, and certainly there are those who say, well, there maybe is a, a sort of grace to be found in these other religions. But among all world religions, there is but one. There is but one religion by which a human being is made righteous before God exclusively by grace alone and not by any works done in them or any rituals to be done and worked out. And that alone is Christianity. Christianity alone holds grace as its primary means of religion. And in fact, the only means by which a human being can be made right before God. The Christian's spiritual nourishment is not found, as we see in our text, in physical realities and religious rituals, but in Jesus Christ and him alone and the grace made available through him by his blood. For the Jews, there was a great emphasis on the altar that was located in the tabernacle and in the temple. This was the place where sacrifices were offered to and accepted by God. Where the day of atonement would take place and the sins of the people would be atoned for. This is the food or the meat that the author is referring to here that the Jews had devoted themselves to. And the writer to the Hebrews had a very important word and warning to those who devote themselves to food, to the altar in the tabernacle. And his word of warning is seen in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Knowing the significance of the altar in Judaism, the Holy Spirit makes this most important point here in verse 10. That now that the final sacrifice has been made for sin by Jesus Christ, those who remained in or returned to the Jewish system were devoting themselves to worthless foods that could do nothing for them, that were worthless. And in devoting themselves to these worthless foods, they were forsaking the grace of God. To put it in a way that we've repeated a few times already throughout this sermon series, to do so is to devote themselves to the shadow while forsaking the substance. Devote themselves to the type of which Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. And in doing so, forsaking 
the grace of God available in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we do have an altar, as the author tells us here. But our altar is not a physical one located here on earth. But we have a spiritual altar where we come to find nourishment as we feast on Christ, who is both the altar and the sacrifice of our worship. It is the altar of which the altar in the tabernacle is but a type, but a shadow, but Christ is the fulfillment. Now we see that the author here, at the end of this book, at the end of this letter, is giving one last word of encouragement to let go of the shadows, to let go of the types, not to turn back to religious rituals that they were familiar with, that they were comfortable with, but to come to Christ, to cling to Christ, the altar where grace is found and sins are forgiven. Not to turn back to that which has no power to forgive sin, but which is only the law, which is only slavery, but rather to come to Christ, to the spiritual altar, which is far greater than the material altar. And he calls them to do this, forsaking all else, and go to where Christ may be found. This is point number three. Forsaking everything else, go where Christ may be found. The question needs to be asked, where can that altar be found? Well, the answer is clear, according to the author of Hebrews, at least where it cannot be found. It cannot be found in the tabernacle, but rather outside the camp. It cannot be found in the temple where the altar, the physical altar of the Jews is, but rather outside the camp. He says in verses 11 and 12, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is perhaps for us a, a strange section of, of scripture, a strange word, but hopefully we can seek to understand what's going on here as the author is writing about these sacrifices and them being, being burned outside the camp. The significance of this is that in the days when the priests would offer sacrifices, sacrifices were offered regularly, even daily. And for the priests, day in, day out, they would have the, the privilege that was theirs, granted them by God, to partake of the sacrifice. After the burnt offering was made, they would eat of what was left as, as their meal, and they would eat it there in the tabernacle. But this was not true on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, in part due to the Frankly, the, the mass number of sacrifices that were made, the blood was brought into the holy places and was sprinkled on the altar, on the Ark of the Covenant. But the bodies themselves were burned, not there in the tabernacle, but outside the camp. So here we see the significance of what the author is saying, that Jesus Christ the true sacrificial lamb, the true means of atonement, the only atoning sacrifice that has ever actually removed sin, like all of these animals, was sacrificed outside the camp. A forgiveness of sins, grace, mercy, is not to be found inside the camp, inside the tabernacle, but outside where Christ is. 
There is a world full of people looking for answers in worldly places. Like the Jews who rejected Jesus, they seek righteousness, they seek joy, they seek satisfaction, but they seek it in every corner that religious systems have to offer. And none of those things can be found there. Righteousness, joy, satisfaction, none of it can be found anywhere but the altar of Christ. The problem is, None of these things, none of these earthly religious systems can do anything to make a person righteous, to bring true and lasting joy or satisfaction. As was foreshadowed by all of the bulls, all of the goats that were offered on the Day of Atonement that were burned outside the camp, Jesus was slaughtered outside the gates of the city, signifying the end of of the Jewish temple as the place of mediation between God and man. Instead, Christ has now become the center of our worship as our effective sacrifice and as our mediator before God. The altar that we come to is not found in a physical temple, but it is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. The Jewish religious system had become obsolete And therefore, the author makes clear to them that to return to it would mean forsaking Christ. Because any such religious system undermines the sufficiency of Christ. And that means religious systems today. Any system today that would seek to perpetuate a need for a sacrifice for forgiveness of sins is an attack on the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice. Any system today that would insist that certain rituals be done, certain words be spoken in order for righteousness to be attained is an affront to the finished work of Christ. It is his finished work alone where grace can be found, where righteousness can be attained. And none of it by anything that we do. We are merely joyful recipients of the grace that is found in Christ Jesus, of the the sanctification that has come by his own blood. Therefore, verse 13 says, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Verses 13 and 14 offer for us a call, a call to bear the reproach of Christ but also hope that as we bear the reproach of Christ, we hope in the city of God. This is point number four, if you're following along. Verse 14 says, For here we have, no, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We read these last two verses, verses 13 and 14, and we see two things. We see one thing, a challenge that is ours. A challenge that... To come to Christ, to come to him outside the camp, means leaving perhaps what we are comfortable with, perhaps what we have known our whole lives, perhaps what we have loved, and forsake forsake it for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ and the grace that's available through him and his finished sacrifice. We are called to come to the altar, but not the altar that is physical, Not the altar that is found inside the temple, inside the tabernacle, but the one that is located outside the gates, the one that is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. For the Jewish readers in this time, they knew what this meant. 
They knew that forsaking Judaism and coming to Christ was bringing reproach upon them. It was to bring not only scorn, mockery, shame, but even hatred, even persecution, even by their Jewish brothers. And yet this is what God has called us to. Indeed, Christ himself said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. So that even father will be turned against son and mother against daughter. For many, coming to Christ, coming to the spiritual altar where grace is found, and the only place where grace is found, means bringing on reproach. And the author calls us here, bear that reproach and come to Christ where he may be found. But he doesn't leave us just with this difficult challenge. He doesn't leave us in this place where we are left to feel the reproach and to feel the shame and to feel the persecution. Yes, that will come. But he also tells us our hope is found in something outside this world. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. The city of God. That which is lasting. That which is eternal. After all that is in this world has been burned away. All the chaff removed and all that is left is God's new creation. The new heavens and the new earth. For us, we will look back on the days in which we faced reproach for his name. In which we faced persecution. And we will say, it was worth it. It was worth it. Every single moment was worth it. Because what we have in Christ Jesus and in the eternal city of God is far greater the gospel of Jesus Christ is so freeing. It is indeed good news. It is such good news that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 knows the accusation that's going to come. Where he says, what then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's how free grace is. And that's how freeing the gospel is. That there is nothing in us that produces this change. It is simply the grace of God alone, the grace found in Jesus Christ and in his shed blood, that by faith in him, trusting in him, we are forgiven of our sins and brought to new life in him. And yet, as freeing as the gospel is, man is still so easily seduced by that which is material, by that that we can hold in our hand, that which we can touch, that which we can experience physically which is why we always have to be on guard of anything that could infiltrate the church to lead us away from the spiritual altar but to any sort of physical altar we don't have an altar here at redeemer fellowship church that is found here at the front of the church and yet i would call each and every one of you today to come to the altar not to any altar found up here or at the front of any church, but to the spiritual altar that is in Christ Jesus. It is there that you will find grace. It is there that you will find forgiveness. It is there that true atonement is accomplished. Not in anything that this world has to offer, not in any religious system, even if that religious system is humanism. Nothing in this world can satisfy your soul but Christ alone. Galatians 4, 8, and 9 says... Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, 
how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Church family, let this be an encouraging word to you. If you are in Christ Jesus, all that you have left behind is worthless. It still calls our name, doesn't it? We still feel the draw of that which we knew before Christ. And we desire that and we want that. That which is tangible, which, is, which we can feel, which is material. But God is calling us here. Those things are worthless, not only worthless, but those things equal slavery. But freedom is found in Christ and in the gospel and in the spiritual altar. Come to that altar and cling to Christ. Let's pray.